There's a pattern of God wanting to dwell with us. In the beginning of Genesis, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. It doesn't say that he was in what was there, but rather was hovering over the face of the earth. But then we see by the end of day seven, he moves in. Then we also see that uh, in 1 Kings, Solomon builds a temple, which is his indwelling of, of his presence here on earth. And then the, eventually, the obviously, the temple is destroyed and everything, but his presence wasn't there anymore. Then we see him come back and indwell with us through Jesus Christ. This is B-Side. I'm Pastor Brandon. This is the podcast where we look at Side B of Sunday. This Sunday, I deviated from finishing Ezekiel. It was Easter Sunday. And I plan to do Ezekiel because it actually has a fitting message with the theme of Easter and the resurrection of Christ. But you'll have to wait till next week for that. Because driving home Saturday night from my grandmother's house, God gave me this idea to do what I did. The message called Forced Easter Stories. So, um... After that message, I had my friend and my assistant and the the man himself who does the children's ministry come and ask me some questions. And so we have with us for this episode, Mr. Gio Montoya himself. Yes, so we're here and uh, excited to be talking about this. Um, I always like to uh, dive into some theological, biblical uh, discussions. I think I. It's really what gets me going sometimes. That's awesome. So if that doesn't get you going, this is not your episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, however, um, yeah. So I I found the conversation we had compelling, and it reminded me that I mean sometimes your worldview is your worldview, and you forget that other people don't see the world through your eyes, right? Correct. Yeah. So I can um, I can sometimes make assumptions that something I say makes sense because it makes perfect sense to me. But um, you brought up you asked some really good questions that reminded me. You know what? I think this would be a great opportunity to on the B side explain some of the ideas about the relationship or the tension between God's presence, meaning he's here with us, versus his transcendence, which means he is above and separate from the created world. So um, when we finish the message in John chapter 20, we see there Mary at the tomb weeping because the body of Jesus is gone and she's assumed someone took it. But Jesus is behind her, <laughs> says, why are you weeping? And she sees him, right? But she doesn't see him as Jesus. She's confused. She thinks he's the gardener. And we reading it, <laughs> we know the secrets. We're like, Mary, Jesus is the gardener. <laughs> but then I provided a challenge to us and asked, but have we learned to see the gardener is Jesus? Like the resurrection, I was saying, is not just a historical event, but it's brought life to such a degree amongst us um, that it's it's unleashed the presence of Christ amongst us. That if we're walking the resurrection, we can start to see the gardener is Jesus. My neighbor is Jesus. My family, my friends, my teachers, my enemies, Geo, not that you're connected with enemy, but Geo <laughs> is Christ. Now, 
<laughs> there's, yeah, that, there's that a could pot- be. potential problem with that, right? Yeah, so, that, it's potential problem with that, uh, depending how you take that. And, and like you were saying, uh, our worldviews, when we explain them or when we state them sometimes, people might not take them the same way, especially the way one person speaks may be different than the way another person speaks. Somebody may be very articulate. Somebody may be very straightforward. It's like the difference between, say, a pastor of a church and somebody who teaches children for for on a day-to-day basis it's just the word is you sometimes can can be played around but i think it's really interesting that you talked about um the gardener jesus and the presence of god here uh with us because in uh matthew uh we see that the name emmanuel is god with us mm. and we also if we look back at the old testament what we end up seeing is that uh god's presence wasn't just with us it was something that was given to a specific person for a specific task or for a specific purpose um god's presence was seen in creation through the beauty of it and all of it but in reality his presence presence as we have it now wasn't so it was uh it was basically by by choice and so as we come into the new testament and we see jesus born and it's god with us and it was also prophesied and everything so that's that's so good yeah, and so Gio, you uh, you just had some questions and um, just wanted to hear out more this idea of the gardener is Jesus. I want to go back to what he said in Matthew. I thought that was really insightful, uh, how Matthew opens the gospel, right, with the whole um, Joseph struggling with Mary being pregnant. And, this, and then the angel says, you shall name him Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then toward the end of Matthew, we see... Um, when Jesus dies on the cross, how the curtain is torn open. Yes. And what we see there is now the presence of God is not restricted to the Holy of Holies inside a little mm. part of the temple, but that is now opened and the presence of God is moving out from there to all of us. Um, and then, of course, Matthew ends, ends, ends with, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. I'm with you. So you definitely nail this aspect of like his presence is here now. It's, it's, it's more saturated. There's something, there's something different now that Christ has come. And so, um, now that he's raised, that presence is, especially his form of life is just, it's wanting to get into us. And I think what it means for us to join him in his death and resurrection is to learn to see that he isn't just over there. Right. He's here with us. Mm -hmm. But let's clarify. We're not talking about pantheism. No, we're not talking about pantheism. And what's the problem with pantheism, Gio? The problem with pantheism is that basically somebody who believes in pantheism sees God as as, uh, God is all. So everything around you is God and God is in everything. So um, your cup of tea is is God. Well, are you um, sure? It's, it tastes pretty divine. Yeah, your tea is God. You are God. So the whole uh, the whole universe is God, basically, and that's that's what pantheism really is. Um, you were saying that that pan is all, and then theism is God. So all is mm. God, and so I think that um, that's an extreme to say that, and that's uh, actually not not very doctrinally correct. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, because God is definitely greater than his creation. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when we say that the gardener is Christ, Geo is Christ, my enemy is Christ, we are not saying that I can worship these people. Right. <laughs> it is not quite to that degree. Um, yeah, so your our discussion after the message on Sunday made me think, this would be a great time to just talk about how the presence of God interacts with the material world. Because there's actually a lot of thought behind this and some terminology. So if you love terms, get your nerd glasses on because I'm going to give you a couple. Just a couple. We're going to make this as simple and practical as possible. Ready, Gio? Ready. Let's do it. Okay. So at the very outset, there are two very, very, very basic worldviews. There's the secular worldview and the sacred worldview. And those can be summarized as follows. The secular worldview says the universe, as I see it, as it exists materially, is all there is. Okay? That's secular. The sacred says, yes, we see the universe, we experience it, but there's something else. Now, um, that sacred worldview... <laughs> that something else, air quotes, has been defined as many different things. As you know, you're reading a book on cults yes. at school. So you're, cults. you're at a swimming <laughs> with all kinds of this is wrong, false teaching. So you're probably. Correct. Yeah. So you've been the right guy to have asking questions because it's good. Um, so yeah, that something else can be called different things by different people, but Christians call it God. We call yeah. it something else, God. And more specifically, the God revealed in Jesus. Yes. Okay. So that's the sacred worldview. That's the one we're going to go to. The sacred worldview <laughs> now has a spectrum, anywhere from pantheism to just cold, hard deism. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, pantheism, in review, uh, says, okay, so that something more is so present that it is everything, right? Right. All God, pantheism. So, um, yeah, as you already said, was reviewing. So, God is these things. And there's no distinction. These things are God. Um, on the other extreme, um, you can take the transcendence of God too far. See, pantheism takes the presence of a God seriously, but it doesn't take his transcendence seriously, right, Gio? His it, oneness. Yeah. Yeah, it makes him with... Yeah. Yeah, it mixes them in with everything else and doesn't... Doesn't give them power. Power. Over these things. Right. Right. So, yeah. So, if if pantheism um, ignores transcendence, um, what deism... And some people just simply call theism... It's kind of unfortunate because theism just refers to God. Right. So, um, but, so, like, uh, theistic deism or something, we'll say. <laughs> um, it It takes transcendence way out of whack. And it forgets presence. So it's the opposite of pantheism. Um, that's where there is a God, yes. He made everything, yes. But he is so much greater than everything he made. He's basically detached himself from it. Yeah, and right? it's interesting because there's some, uh, there's a group of people in the beginning of, uh, historical America that mm. believed in deism and that believed that God made everything. He started a time clock and he just left everything. Right. That time clock is up or that time is up. He's going to come <laughs> back and he's going to 
basically do what he needs to do. Right. And, you know, that's it's actually quite a convenient um, sacred worldview because basically you can say, okay, there is a God, but he's basically left us to run the show on our own. Yes. So then you can glorify all kinds of other things that the Bible call idols, like, um, well, just kind of elevating the human a little too much. You don't really need to trust God because God wasn't isn't really here for us to trust in. And unfortunately, Gio, uh, maybe you can relate to this. I've sensed that some Christians actually buy into this worldview uh, in the way that we kind of treat God. We kind of treat him as the guest, right? Yes. He's the guest at our worship service. He's the one we're calling on to come hear us or to come be with us or to come bless us with his presence. And I understand the motivation, but I think it's not a biblically informed way because the Bible is actually saying God was here first. He's always been here first. We are his guests in his world. And he's setting the table for us at church. We're walking into his ground, right? Mm, yeah. um, so sometimes I think we, without articulating it, we're actually operating in a worldview where God is kind of somewhere else. And maybe it's because experientially we don't always feel him. I don't know if you can relate to that. No, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, because... Um, I was uh, um, reading this devo this morning with uh, our, our youth, kids, and children that we have. And basically, I was with Oswald Chambers. And what it was talking about was, it was talking about uh, feeling God's presence. Because if you've been a Christian for a while, you've known that, you know that there's times when you strongly feel God's presence. And there's times when you don't. And I think if some if the Bible teaches something is, is that even when you don't feel God's presence, He's still there. Um, mm-hmm. Even when we don't feel like God is there, he is there for us and he's there in presence. And so um, I think it's so important because sometimes we can go as far as 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 looking forward to to that next. Uh, oh, I want to feel God's presence once again. Mm-hmm. But what we don't understand is that God's always there. And just because we're not fully aware of his presence at all times. So good. That that he, he's actually there. Yeah, it's almost like we've um, limited his presence to a feeling. Exactly, and we become presence junkies, I guess you could say. (laughs) Yeah, almost, yeah, looking for the next high, so to speak. Exactly. Which actually then turns Christianity into nothing more than just another form of worldlings looking for pleasure. Exactly, because... Which is kind of a scary thought. Yeah, uh, looking for experiences that, uh, that are transcendent when it's like God is here every single moment. Yeah, so, okay, so pantheism um, doesn't take transcendence seriously, and it overplays presence. Right. Uh, Deism doesn't take presence seriously, and it overplays transcendence. Mm -hmm. So, usually this is the case. Somewhere in the middle is the truth, and the good news is that somewhere in the middle is what I see in the Bible. Right. Now, here's where... Um, language can become a barrier and I almost hate to throw the word, but I think the word itself defines very clearly what we're trying to say. So it's not pantheism. It's not deism. It is pan antheism, pan and we got to emphasize. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because if you just listen casually, it sounds like pantheism or panantheism, which can also. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's not what I'm saying. 
But it's two the two separate words, pan and theism. Is what you're saying. Pan N. Not and. And. Pan E N theism. Okay. So here's what it means. Pan all theism God. Um but rather than saying God is everything and everything is God, we're saying God is N everything. He's in, in. everything. And everything is in God. Now, here's why this is beautiful. Because it takes both presence and transcendence seriously. And it treats them as equals. So, God is in everything, takes his presence amongst us seriously. We have this marvelous universe. God isn't over somewhere else outside of it. He's in it, right? And that's what we learned with Jesus. The mm-hmm. incarnation told us and the opening of the veil of the temple and the resurrection says, look, that, that presence wants to be here in the universe with us. So that's the presence part. But the transcendence, because not only is God in the universe, but the universe is in God. And that talks about his transcendence. He's greater than it. He's bigger than it. He's not limited to dwelling within it. <laughs> it is within him. That's how big and grand he is, right? It's all a product of his creation, his making. So that still keeps him separate and over this whole thing. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. I think one of the uh, things that really helped me understand uh, what it means for the universe to be in God is basically that God is not in time, but he's out of time. Mm. And because he's out of time, it, the universe is basically just one whole event. It's not this whole, um, like all these events, one after another, but rather one whole event. That's how God sees everything. And so he's because he's yeah. out of time, the universe is basically within God. Yeah, so that's looking at the transcendence part. Mm-hmm. Look at the transcendence part, yeah. Yeah, and the presence part is... At the same time, so strangely, he can enter into our time. Yes. And as Jesus said, two or more, there I am in the midst of them. Um, but I, I mean, he's he, he even if I'm by myself praying, he's there with me. Right. Uh, the two or more was dealing more with the authority of the church that, you know, two or more witnesses kind of a mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, um, that he can also be in our time zone. It's just so mind blowing. Yeah, it is very mind blowing. And that's, I think that's the beauty of Christianity. I think, um, you know, uh, like, a pagan religion will just simply say, no, 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 the gods are with us. And, you know, it's almost superstitious. You're relying on them for everything and you're not really sure how the world works. So every time, you know, um, it rains, it's the gods are crying on us or something. Um, or yeah, the think, other extreme of theism. So. Yeah, I think it's really awesome because when you, like you were saying, when you think about it, um, what it really is, uh, if you look at other religions, there's all these works that you have to do to gain the favor of Ooh, the gods good. or the god or whoever may be the universe. All these things uh, that you have to do for them. But with God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible... There's nothing that you have to do. It's all been done. You, it's all through grace. And you're not trying to gain his favor, but you're working from that grace. Ooh, good. Because he uh, automatically loves you. Yeah. Yeah, there's this... So just, freeing. Yeah, endless flow moving amongst us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... Uh, you're freeing is such a good word. So, so kind of showing... Let's, like, walk through the Bible and show how this... Um, 
let's stop using the word panentheism because I think that's just going to rub people the wrong way. It yeah. rubs me the wrong way. So let's just talk about the whole God in everything and everything in God. Let's talk about that. <laughs> how how Jesus is the gardener, but the gardener is also Jesus. And probably more properly, if we're talking literally here, I need to say that um, Christ is in Geo. Christ is in my enemy, right? Christ is in my family and friends and so on. So that's the technical language we're saying. Um, I simply said that um, the gardener is Christ because it, wording-wise, right, it fits with Jesus is the gardener and the gardener is Christ. Well, yeah, the, Christ is in the gardener. The people around us makes, you're giving me a confused look. Am I coming across? No, yeah, like, no, oh, okay. I get what you're saying. You're, you're thinking about something else. <laughs> nice. Glad you're with us. <laughs> we all do it. Um, so what I want to, I want to do real quick is show like what John is about and yeah. how his, his resurrection happens in a garden. It, it's so, uh, the stuff gives me goosebumps. So in a uh, John eight nineteen at the very end in 41, it says that in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, Jesus is buried in a garden. John's not very subtle about that. And then, Mary thinks the person, who's Jesus, in the garden is the gardener. I mean, hello, we get the setting, right? It's a garden. Now, it could be totally easy to overlook this aspect of the garden if we haven't been reading the gospel as a whole. So, you know how John opens, right? The very first words of his gospel. Yes. Putting you on the spot here. You don't need to turn there. You know how this goes. In the beginning was the word and nice. the word the word was. Oh, extra credit now. <laughs> with God and the word was God. <laughs> I think that's how we, I always confuse turn like switch them up. That's you know, I was, all I was asking though for was the first three words. <laughs> oh, okay. So just put me in the spot, why don't you? <laughs> in the beginning. Good. <laughs> John is not trying to be subtle. He's not trying to sneak into our subconscious. He's just full on coming out saying, yep, I'm going to start my gospel like Genesis. Mm. Because the Genesis story got derailed by Adam and Eve. And Jesus is going to put it back on its track. So we have in the beginning, we have the word, which is what God used to create everything, right? And then we find out that that word became flesh and became Jesus. So that eternal word took on human form for a moment to show us I'm not just transcendent, I'm also going to be present. Mm. So we're going through this um, to show that when Jesus then raised, is raised in a garden, well, if we're reading John properly, we should pick up this hint. It's not so subtle at the beginning, in the beginning, um, but here, if you're not thinking that way, you're going to miss the fact that we're coming back to the Garden of Eden. Christ is bringing everything back to its original intent. It's interesting that you point out the garden because um, if you look at the um, the beginning of his him facing the crucifixion, he starts off in the garden before he's arrested. That's right. Um, And and then with the resurrection, it happens in the garden. So it begins in the garden and. I guess you could almost say it ends in a garden, but it's, I think it's another, uh, sort of checkpoint to the next step, which is the resurrection and the second coming later. But, um, yeah, I just, that just came to mind as you were talking about the garden. Yeah. Yeah. But it is interesting that John doesn't have the prayer in the garden scene. Right. And he instead has the foot washing scene of the exactly. disciples, which, um, it's almost like preparing your feet to be planted in this garden. Stay mm. here. Right. Uh, 
if you don't let me wash you, Peter, you have no part of me. He's like, oh, wash everything then. Oh my gosh, he wanted a whole, whole bath. <laughs> but so, but so the garden is really important because in Genesis chapter two, verse one, we have the seventh day of creation. Hmm. So in the beginning, well, yeah, the reader is supposed to go back to the beginning, um, and we see. Um, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he'd done, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, we Americans, or maybe just the West, not just Americans, just the word rest itself to us is like the weekend. You know, it's just like, yeah, I'm not going to chill. I'm not going to do much. I'm going to put right. my feet up and watch um, the Stanley Cup playoffs or something. Um, sorry that your Chicago Blackhawks didn't make it, but I can't oh, say much for the Ducks either. Um, <laughs> or the Kings. But, uh, he So you're rested. saying that rest is almost like, uh, disengaging from reality. It's not that. It's not. No, no, but as oh, Americans. rest, yes. As Americans, we, uh, take rest as disengaging from reality. Exactly. So the biblical rest, at least the rest here, is the exact opposite. It right. is engaging in reality. And so one of the ways that you see this is in Psalm 132. So we're using the Bible here to interpret the Bible, which is always a good thing to do. So Psalm 132 actually picks up on this idea of rest, and we'll see what it means. Uh, Psalm 132, verse 8. Arise, O Lord, or O Yahweh, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So this is a psalm where it's like when God's presence is going to take up residence in the temple. So rise, Lord, and go to your resting place. Mm. So then the psalm continues in verse 13. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. That's a, that's a name for Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Then it has in quotes, God speaking. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So Psalm 132 helps us connect the idea of a resting place with God's dwelling place. Mm. So when the seventh day comes around of creation, God has made a house for six days. Then on the seventh day, he moves in. That's what it means to rest. He moves in to dwell in it. And this is the awesome thing because where like other religions would always talk about their gods create everything so that everything can serve them. <laughs> right. Or even to back to pantheism, like everything that was made was just their baby gods from the male and female consort gods. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, this is very different. A single God transcendent then chooses to be present. Right. On the seventh day, he's right. made it. He's going to move in. So that's how you should read rest. He moved in and dwelt with his creation, which is exactly what John's telling us Jesus did. The word became flesh in the beginning was the word. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you know, right? What the word dwelt among us is in the Greek. That's right. He tabernacled amongst us. <laughs> he tabernacled, um, which is a, which obviously goes back to the temple it, and the temple was the dwelling place of God. It's where his presence was in the midst of his people. Right? So Jesus comes and is present among us. He tabernacles among us. The resting place here is God dwelling among us. He's present among us. And so then we see the garden and, um, Adam and Eve, there's an allusion to the fact that they walked with him because in chapter three, verse eight, uh, 
it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So, like, it seems like this was a normal thing. Like, God and humans, heaven and earth, mesh perfectly well. There wasn't this, like, you know, heaven's too holy for a dirty hu- earth, and God is too great for the lowly humans. Um, Psalm 8 even says that God made us hardly lower than angels. And So what you're saying is that there's a pattern in... <laughs> <laughs> Stop! Okay, wait, 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 cause, cause, so just going back to uh, creation, there's a pattern of God uh, wanting to dwell with us, but... Uh, putting it in the right setting. So say, for example, um, in the beginning of Genesis, it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. It doesn't say that he was in, uh, uh, in what was there, but rather was hovering over the face of the earth. But then mm-hmm. we see by the end of, uh, uh, day or day seven, he moves in just as you said, oh, so and good. he's indwelling. Uh, then we also see that, uh, in the Exodus, God is tabernacle, among the people but it's in a Hmm. tent that moves from place to place to place but then later moving forward to i think it's second kings where uh solomon builds a temple yeah i Um, think it's first kings but first kings first kings solomon builds a temple which is his uh indwelling of of his presence here on earth with his people uh at that moment the nation of israel and so yeah. then we see moving forward that his presence um, ends up being removed from there. And then the, eventually, the obviously, the temple is destroyed and everything, but his presence wasn't there anymore. Um, then we see him come back and indwell with us through Jesus Christ or Perfect. as a manifestation through Jesus Christ. The temple becomes a body. There you go. So, yeah, I was just trying to follow along with what you were saying. Yeah, no, it's really, you added to what I'm saying, too. It's good. And actually, you're starting to steal um, Ezekiel 40 through 48's message, oh, which no. is next Sunday. A preview. So, <laughs> preview. Let's try not to give too much of that away, but why not hear it twice, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but the difference is that the garden, like the temple is the whole thing, right? God and humans are everywhere together. But then because of the fall, we have to have a... a uh, what we call like a medium or uh, an intercessor, a middle ground, right? You need a bridge to meet God. So it had to become the priestly system and the temple. So now God's, God's presence among us is a bit restricted. Um, but then when Jesus comes, you know, and that, that veil in the temple is ripped, it's no longer restricted. And then, so it's almost like, so when God, when he's on the cross and God's presence comes out of the Holy of Holies, Jesus is mimicking that by coming out of the tomb and unleashing the presence of God is no longer in a location, right? Right. It's now everywhere. So the whole just transcendent is challenged to, he's just as present as he's transcendent. So no, God is not a tree, but I can experience God by being amongst his creation, right? I can feel his presence in a different way or um, connect with him in a different way or with the humans that I love. John says that we're to love one another because that's how we love God. You see, the whole thing's going together. Jesus in John 17 prayed that, um, that, he would be in us and we would be in him. And just as he is in the father, like there's this whole, everything fits together. So it's not that we become holy divine or anything, but it's that we are included in his mm. essence, if you will. I don't become, I'm not divine, but I am included by the divine. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just mind boggling that we become sons and daughters of God. Yeah. I know that's, 
that's really interesting. As I was uh, listening to you and uh, thinking more about these uh, uh, these indwellings of God, I um, started to realize that there seems to be also a pattern in that. Um, it's just so amazing how even though He's all powerful, all knowing, He still respects us with by through free will. Uh, through our allowing us to choose him or not, allowing us to choose his presence or not in us, because uh, he may be there, but I I think that uh, to dwell in us, we have to choose for him to dwell in us. And so, if we see, for example, the Garden of Eden, he was dwelling there, but then Adam and Eve chose otherwise, and so his presence becomes something that's that 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 moves on to another, almost another stage. Then we see with Israel, his presence was there in dwelling with his nation, but they rejected him. And so mm-hmm. what ends up happening, uh, uh, because of their immorality and their idolatry, um, he ends up pulling that presence and restricting that presence because they chose otherwise. And then we see even with Jesus Christ coming into, coming to the cross and the veil being ripped open, um, he was rejected by his people, by the Jewish people. And so what we see is that even though his presence is everywhere, um, he still uh, gives that free choice to receive him or mm-hmm. not. Do you receive? Because it moves from uh, being in it. I think what you're saying is, is completely true. The veil is torn. And so God's presence is let out of the temple, but it's only let out of the temple to indwell or dwell in uh, and the, the the body that's the temple now, the body of every every person who chooses to believe. And I think with that, we just see this pattern of of God's presence being uh, dwelling, and then uh, man choosing otherwise. And so His presence continues to only multiply and grow bigger and bigger. And by multiplication, I don't mean like more gods, but I mean <laughs> what I mean. It, right. it, it continues to. Um, become aware or spread in an awareness Mm. that uh, we come to see now that it's been revealed that he's everywhere. And um, there's going to come a day when I think another one of these patterns is going to happen. He's going to come back for a second time, but it's going to be for good. And he's going to dwell with his people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Revelation at the end says, that Mm -hmm. the dwelling place of God is now with men. Mm -hmm. It's come full circle finally. And that's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? Here on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. He wants the two together again. Mm. But you were talking about pushing God away, right? Right. Um, that, that just, it just hit me. Like we often don't want the union, heaven and earth, God and man, because the more we have to accept God's presence among us, we have to accept his transcendence over us. Mm. I think we're okay with God being transcendent over history, over the planets, the cosmos, the world, the affairs of everything, our politics, even to some extent our lives. And by our lives, we usually mean our big decisions, our fate, our destiny, whatever you want to call it. But the minute we have to accept that he's here and present in every aspect of our life, we then have to surrender to his way in every little part of our life. And Mm -hmm. I don't think we like that. We want him transcendent, but not transcendent and here at the same time, because that asks too much of us. But as we're discussing, it really doesn't cost us anything. It's only good. Right. We're our own worst enemies. 
Well, and and going off of that, um, I just want to build off of that. I think it does cost us a lot. Um, I think it costs us who are nature, which is a sinful nature. Because I I feel like when um, when we choose to fully surrender to uh, the will of God to Jesus, uh, what happens is that His nature uh, becomes indwelling in us and we can't there can't be two natures there so it's either our nature that loses mm. or his nature that loses so either yeah. we lose ourselves or we lose jesus we, yeah. we can't have both and so i fully agree with you i think and i agree with you we do lose but yeah it's a loss that's actually a gain yes yes and so. what you mean is we don't lose anything that's that's good we lose mm. everything that's um that's not good which is yeah. our, our own nature. Yeah. So let's talk about that presence being good and wanting to bless and, and recognizing that it's here. And it's not just like, oh, you're just reading the bookends of the Bible to get this theology. No, the Psalms talk about the presence of mm. God to a point that you almost cringe because it feels almost pantheistic. Yes. I mean, the pagan mm. form pantheistic. <laughs> um, but it's not. You'll see that it's not because the Psalms also magnify God as over the earth, the ruler of the earth, the judge of the earth. So when we bounce, we see that there's this equal play of presence presence and transcendence. And so I want to read a couple of um, verses from Psalm 104. Um, what it does is it talks about God as the creator, but it also talks about him as the sustainer. And by the way, that um, that idea of the sustainer also comes from Colossians 1.17, right? All things are held together by him. It talks about him being the firstborn of creation, everything coming from him, but then he holds it all together. The Psalms mimic that. So actually, we should be saying Paul in Colossians is mimicking the Psalms. Yes. So in this Psalm 104, in verse 5, we see that he set the earth on its foundations, right? There's this act of creation. But then in verse 10, we have the whole he's dwelling with his creation. He's present with it. He's sustaining it. It says, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. God's making the springs gush forth. And verse 13 from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. What is it talking about? Rain. But it's attributing God as the one pouring this out. I think it's really cool. Like, there's a really intimate picture of God with his creation in this psalm. Um, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. In verse 21. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. It's so beautiful of an of a God who's continually giving to his creatures. He made us, then he keeps us alive. He sustains us. So then there's one more Psalm. It's really powerful. And it's actually just about one verse. It's the best. I mean, there's other parts of the Psalm, but Psalm 147 verse nine. Um, I remember, um, I almost said hearing Spurgeon. He, <laughs> he died a long time ago, reading a Spurgeon sermon on this. And it just, uh, I love this verse ever since. Uh, Psalm 147 verse nine says, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Hmm. So, like, we can obviously explain naturally and scientifically how all of these things, the water cycle, like the springs and the rains, right, and, and the crops growing and the animals getting their food, like, we can explain how that works. But what the Bible is saying is behind all of that. It's the worldview of there's, yes, there's the universe, the material world, and something else. And the Psalms are saying, look, God is behind taking care of everything, right? He's, he's with the animals as they eat. He's with them as they're hungry. 
It doesn't say that he is the animals. He's there with them, right? He's aware of all that. And I think that's just such a beautiful picture of his presence. So what you're saying is that he didn't just set a time clock and <laughs> leave everything to fend for themselves and everybody has to fend for themselves. No. Yeah, we have a God who is not in survival mode. <laughs> He's trying to help us thrive, right? Yes. No, I completely out. agree. Because I think we uh, sometimes we can live that way. As 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 God just left us here to fend for ourselves, and we gotta do and and say and uh, play everything out in our own mind or mm. in our own lives, you know. Yeah, that's right. So then, maybe coming back to John and finishing here. Yes, back to John twenty. Now I think we've kind of put all this in place. Um, the most magnificent insight of this resurrection account, which I did not share on Sunday. Sometimes you can only bring too much good stuff at once, or it's like you can't receive it at a certain point. Right. <laughs> but it was so good. Um, the first time I heard this, I like did a, you can't be serious. And then I looked into it, and I'm like, sure enough, it's serious. So um, I'm excited. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Um, let's see. Verse 11, John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. I want us to pause to really grasp what we're seeing. Weeping is a sign of the fallen age, right? In Revelation 21, it says that he will wipe the tears away from our eyes. So mm. the wiping tears away is a sign of heaven and earth finally being reunited, right? So we know that there's problems right now, but this is about to change because the resurrection has happened. Mm. Um, so she's weeping, one. She's looking into a tomb, second. A tomb is a place of life. No, that's a womb. <laughs> a tomb is a place of... Don't confuse them. <laughs> <laughs> a tomb is a place of death. So she's looking into death, the grave, that which has mastered us. In the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you will die, right? Right. We've been staring into the tomb forever. So this is her. This is us weeping, staring into the grave. But then in verse 12, she saw in this tomb of death, this place of death, she saw two angels in white. Now the location of them is super important. Two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. Okay. It may not sound like much mind-blowing stuff yet, but wait for it. I love this kind of stuff, though, because... <laughs> Right as before you say it, I'm trying to really think of where we're going with this and what is it going to say. And you have no mind. idea. And I have no idea. But once you say it, it's going to be, just like you said, mind-blowing. Okay. So where else? Let's see if Gio's totally on the spot, everyone. So give him grace. <laughs> <laughs> where else have you seen or read about, because we haven't seen this, um, two angels, one at the head and one at the foot? Are you talking about the cherubim? Yes. On what? Uh, is it the temple? In the temple. In the temple where the Ark of the Covenant More, was? There, there you go. On the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol, the symbolic presence of heaven and earth touching down in that one place, because it was the purest place on earth, um, there were, on the slab of the covenant, which would have looked like the slab that Jesus' body was laying on. And on the head and the foot of the Ark of the Covenant were two angels sitting there, right? And so Mary looks in and sees a visual 
representation of the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies, inside the grave, inside death. So when we say that the veil of the temple has been torn open and the presence is now unleashed, she's looking at another version of this. The presence is not only unleashed, but it has invaded places like death itself. Mm. So now there's nowhere. And of course, the psalm already knew this, Psalm 139. There's nowhere we can go that he's not already there. Even if I make my bed in Hades, he is there. So that's pretty crazy, huh? Yeah, that's that's this is the kind of um, things you come to know that. You just want to dwell on it for a little while and let it sink in as to what all that means. (laughs) Because as you're saying it here, all these like things are like almost like explosions are happening in my head. Like, whoa, like it's just mind boggling. Yeah, you don't know what to say. Connections and stuff like that. Because what it, what, what it kind of, kind of, I think points me towards is I think about the temple. There was only uh, a priest that could enter, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but once a year uh, that would enter mm-hmm. once a year to make a sacrifice. And if he wasn't cleansing, he wasn't, um, then he would, he would die. Yeah. The um, day of atonement. Yeah. So they would, um, tradition says that they would tie a rope to his ankle. Yeah. And in case he didn't come out, they <laughs> would, they were able to drag him out. That would be like a really horrible thing that would happen if you have to drag a priest out of there. But, um, you think about that. And so, Basically, what, what what comes to mind is that uh, in a place where the presence of God was so strong that uh, if a man went in there was not righteous, cleansed uh, before the eyes of God, he would die. Now you move forward to John chapter 20 and you see that in a tomb um, where the presence of God mm-hmm. uh, has been released. And who is it that shows up? A woman. Mm-hmm. And not only a woman, but, um, well... To, to kind of point out, there was no woman priest ever in history, mm. uh, of, or tradition or whatever it may be. And so a woman shows up. She yeah. doesn't die, yeah. but rather what we see is that she's like, comforted. She's comforted. Her eyes um, are open. And, and, and where Jesus, and it's cool because it says where Jesus' body lain. So it's no longer, it's like the, um, switching of position where as a priest would die because he would, he wasn't righteous the righteous man jesus christ died for his creation yes oh, it's yeah. mind-boggling it's, and I'm, now, I'm getting and, chills <laughs> and, and you're, you're hitting on the woman aspect mary being there but remember it was the woman who ate the fruit too right so oh. god is fully bringing it full circle i didn't even right? think about that yeah and as Adam was absent and infamously absent in that episode, <laughs> kind of quiet, he was there, but she gave it to him, right? So um, the male disciples are infamously absent from the resurrection scenes, too. It's kind of crazy. But God's bringing it all back around. And Gio right now has got this face on where he's in deep thought, so I better keep talking. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, but the thing here, too, is that it's not just to emphasize that, okay, now the presence of God is in death, but it's also, remember, the tomb is where the resurrected Christ came out of, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, he was raised in a tomb, and he came out of the tomb, so that Holy of Holies has come out with him. He's now bringing it to the earth everywhere he goes, and by extension, by giving the Holy Spirit to his people, we are bringing that out into the world. So that's one of our missions in life is to carry the presence and transcendence of God everywhere we go. So in 
like a 50 minute nutshell. That's, um, that's in a sense what we mean by <laughs> the gardener is Jesus and how we reconcile his presence being here and yet God still being God. Hmm. Yeah, that's so good. So thanks, Gio, for this conversation and for your questions. I love it because it always helps me think, oh, yeah, these are things people are interested in or things they have questions about. And it gives me like a lot to share. And so um, otherwise, I would never have thought of sharing this. So uh, thanks for this episode. Thanks I for getting... glad to be part of this. And uh, yeah, I just love conversations like yeah, this. Yeah, you, you broke the silence. I haven't done a B-side in some time. And um, for you <laughs> listeners, it was really helpful to hear some of you ask if I had quit because it told me that people listened and cared. I mean, yeah, I see stats on the internet, how many people click the, the B-sides, but it doesn't tell me who listens all the way through or their satisfaction <laughs> with it. So it was good to hear from some of you, and um, I do hope to be doing this more regularly here. I think I sort of had a little season of um, so-called writer's block, more talker's block, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, I sometimes get tired of hearing my voice, so I don't want to fill your ears with nonsense unless I actually have something to say. So... Thank Gio for um, bringing out a really interesting discussion. And uh, all right, so Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, the climatic end to the book. It's actually going to um, overlap quite a bit with what we talked about. And so I think you'll see why I think it would have been an appropriate Easter message. So we're kind of going to get two Easter messages in a row. But hey, this is what our faith hangs on. Can't talk about it too much. So uh, until then, happy reading, everyone. This is Pastor Brandon and Gio. And Gio. <laughs> With grace and gratitude, thank you for listening. <laughs>